minutes, a minute past the hour of 6 o'clock. And this is the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. Glad you're with us. We still have a few shards of sunshine. Uh, but, but this is, of course, the first day of fall. Uh, and we must uh, make note of that. And uh, we don't necessarily have to make note of it. But yesterday was my birthday. So I had a ball yesterday. Thanks in large measure to my lovely wife, Kim, who uh, really stepped up to the plate when it came to the birthday celebration, as it were. Lots of stuff to talk about, so we're not going to dwell on that. Uh, first and foremost, Pope Francis in the U.S. He seems pretty cool to me. You know, uh, I'm not a Catholic. Uh, I have had my differences with some Catholic church teachings and doctrine. But he seems to be pretty cool. I like the guy. Not everybody does. <laughs> Certainly not all radio commentators do. Uh, the most absurd thing I saw, that I, I think it was on Facebook, somebody posted like a, uh, a melange of uh, conservative talkers, including Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh and the usual suspects on Pope He's a socialist. You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, but the most absurd one, was from some clown. I don't know who he is. Uh, I, maybe I should, but I don't, and I don't care who he is. But he, he says, uh, the same people that brought you Barack Obama brought you Pope Francis. Oh, really? So the American people elected Pope Francis? Because that's who brought us Barack Obama, you moron. But, hey, you know, I quibble. Um, he was uh, and is, in fact, in D.C., had a crowd of about 11,000 people out at the Ellipse, uh, and he talked about global poverty, climate change, caring for immigrants around the world, and a welcoming church. Well, check, 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 and check. I'm down with all of that. Maybe not everybody is, and anybody who doesn't toe the conservative line, I guess, they figure, is a socialist. And, you know, people toss the word socialist around as if they're talking about, you know, uh, somebody with, with pleurisy or something. It's ridiculous. But remember that the Pope is the spiritual leader of 1.2 billion, with a B, Roman Catholics. And President Obama certainly did roll out the red carpet. Uh, as well he should. And, you know, this this Pope, uh, I, I have a great deal of hope that uh, his reign, I think he's 78 years old, I don't know how long he plans on serving, but that his reign will perhaps refocus the church. Because Lord knows he's not going to refocus the American Congress because they, they, they're not about being refocused. That's not what they want to do at this point. Of course, the Pope is coming to New York tomorrow, I believe, and people in New York don't look at, you know, revered public figures just as revered public figures. First thing New Yorkers want to know, what's it going to do to the traffic? Well, I guess if you got half a brain, you will leave your car at home. Take mass transit. And uh, even mass transit may have some problems. I don't know. You know, sometimes they create these frozen zones, and even the subways that run underground don't stop at every station. I know I may do that for a carnival in Brooklyn. Uh, so you never know. 
I would check my local listings, as it were, because I'm no longer a, a transit uh, expert if I ever was one. So I don't know what's going to be closed and what's going to be open. I would just say, you know, if you don't have to go into New York while the Pope is here, don't. Don't go. And that's, you know, not trying to discourage people. Uh, my guess is the Danutas, more on them later, probably won't be out in force through Times Square. They'll find some place to put them if the Pope is going to be trying. I know he's going to be in East Harlem. It's going to be uptown, El Barrio, which is, I think, a, a good thing. You know, the emphasis on the poor, the emphasis on climate change, the emphasis on immigration, uh, kind of, sort of, pulls the, the, the religious rug out of some of the people that are running for president. You know, the Republicans, that is. You know, because these are the same people who've been running against immigration, against climate change. You know, at least a couple of climate change deniers among the people who would lead the most powerful nation in the free world. And they know who they are. I'm not going to name all of them. But, I mean, the bottom line is... Uh, during that last debate they had, which I did not watch, but I, I did see somebody point out, they never mentioned poverty. They never mentioned the poor. And here comes Pope Francis, a spiritual leader of some heft. And what's the first thing he talks about when he gets here? Immigration, the poor, climate change. If only his words would give some of the clown boys and girls that we have in American political life, and in American media, some pause. I know it's not going to happen, but perhaps it should. Why shouldn't people say, you don't have to be a Catholic. You really don't. I'm not a Catholic. I think he's cool. That's just me. And and I say that knowing that there are going to be some things, abortion, same-sex marriage, those, those doctrines, as far as the Catholic Church is concerned, that's not going to change. The Catholic Church will still be opposed to same-sex marriage. The Catholic Church will still be opposed to abortion. Well, we agree to disagree on those things. I don't have to be disagreeable with, with Catholics or the Pope about those issues. But when you come with some of the issues that I do care about, poverty, the, the, the extraordinary problems that children who are already in the world have, getting water, getting food, much less getting an education. And see, this is what scares some of these people, because one of, one of those clowns that was uh, in this conservative media mix, well, he believes in one world government, <laughs> you know, uh, as if that, I guess, I guess they figure if there's a one world government on the planet, Somebody's going to come and snatch their microphones away. I guess that's what they think. I don't know what they think. It's amazing to me sometimes the way some of these people's minds work. And I think it might even surprise some of them who they are in agreement with around the world. You know, uh, but that that's another discussion for another day. Uh, by the way, the Pope showed up to the White House in a Fiat. <laughs> Great advertising for that Italian car. And then, of course, he drove through the Pope Mobile. Um, and his English is halting. You know, he's not, English is not his first and, and not his second language, in fact. 
He delivered a speech in Italian to the leaders of the American Catholic Church. Uh, and, and, you know, the message wasn't all about, you know, America being a bunch of sloppy, predatory capitalists. That's what the conservative media would have you believe he was saying. It wasn't what he said. He praised America. He praised America because it's devoted to freedom of liberty and religion. He also said that the nation's resources demanded a sense of moral responsibility. It's from the New York Times. This is important. This is very, very important. Another thing he did when he spoke to the uh, leaders of the American Catholic Church, I guess they must all speak Italian. But he said that uh, some of the bishops... I guess all of the bishops were to be praised for their work on behalf of immigrants and for the first time praised their courage in handling the church's sex abuse scandal. I don't know that there's been a previous pope that has mentioned this in a, in a public speech. Maybe I'm wrong. But he also, and again, you can agree to disagree. Here is the bishops not to remain silent toward the innocent victims of abortion. You know what that's about. But he also talked about children who die of hunger, immigrants who drown in search for a better tomorrow, the elderly, the sick, victims of terror, war, drug trafficking. These are world problems, and maybe that's why Americans have so much difficulty wrapping their brains around them. You know, we, we wrap our brains around Kim Kardashian, or we wrap our brains around the real housewives of wherever. That we wrap our brains around. Or, you know, some of these movies that come out that's, that are nothing but, you know, fighting between two different groups of people. You can't even figure out who's supposed to be right and who's supposed to be wrong. But they just have spectacular fights. That's what we're preoccupied with, it seems to me. But when it comes to kids that are drowning or immigrants that are trying to get somewhere because where they are in their home country has become totally unsafe, that we have difficulty wrapping our brains around. Except in the most simplistic Fox News channel terms. And, you know, my problem with Fox News isn't that it exists. It's that people watch it and shape their views because I don't ask anybody to shape their views based on what I say. I really don't. I don't, you know, I, I, I'm not going to say I don't care because that's going to sound too blunt and cavalier. But my thing is not really about saying to you, you got to think like me. That's absurd. I believe the people that listen to the Progressive Radio Network are intelligent people who can form their own thought processes and come to their own conclusions. You may listen to me for this hour and say, you know, that guy's full of crap. Hey. That's your right. That's cool. I don't expect everybody to agree with me about everything. But I try to bring some facts to the table. Some of these people, Limbaugh included, talk trash based on pure speculation. Well, if this one gets elected, then this is going to happen. And it turns out 90% of the time to be totally untrue. I try and I'm not trying to do a dirty glass clean glass thing because I ain't perfect, all right? But I do try 
to identify speculation when I speculate. If I'm going to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking this, well, I'm speculating. I'm predicting. I could be right. I could be wrong. But these guys speculate with divine certainty in some cases. And that's the thing that makes them, as far as I'm concerned, dangerous. No, not dangerous to the point that they need to be censored or taken off the radio or whatever. That's, that's, not, that's not how you deal with it. My brother Clayton, rest his soul, always said to me, the way to counter bad speech is with better speech. And I think that uh, Pope Francis has proved that in terms of what he is saying to the American people. Now, I guess, is he going to Congress? To, I don't even know why he's bothering to go to Congress, to tell you the truth. People, just plain folks, seem to really bond with this guy. Maybe that's what makes the conservatives so nervous. You know, because they figure they've been talking up all of these, you know, the Scott Walkers, oh, sorry, he's no longer in the race. The Rick Perrys, oh, sorry, he's no longer in the race. And all the rest of these people. And, you know, when they start woofing and barking and talking about this and talking about that, Ben Carson don't want a Muslim in the White House, all of that kind of crap. Again, speculative crap, but crap nonetheless. Uh, I guess they figure that that's the world. Not just their world, the world. And that's what Americans think. But then they see people cheering a religious figure who talks about poverty. Because, see, uh, what did Limbaugh say? Well, he just wants to have the rich give and give and give, so we'll all be poor. Yeah, how stupid is that? How stupid is that? But, hey, you know, he, he's, he is who he is. So the Pope is here. He's going to be here for the next few days. He's coming to New York, and he's going to Philly. And uh, I didn't realize he's only been Pope for two years. You know, they call him the People's Pope. He seems to have support, at least, you know, I don't know. There, there's something, maybe I'm wrong. But there's something vaguely obscene to me about doing a poll on a pope. (laughs) Come on. Can you, like, stop? But they did a New York Times-CBS News poll. Most Americans like the guy by a pretty wide margin. Most American Catholics approve of him. But why, why do we have to have a poll for that? He's not a politician, for God's sake. He's not running for the papacy. Well, anyway. That's just my own, I guess, uh, uh, particular prejudice. You know, I mean, he's a revered religious figure. I'm, I'm an Episcopalian. I wouldn't want a poll done on the head of the Episcopal Church. I'm sorry. It's just, it's, it's unnecessary. It's unneeded. It's unwarranted. You know, you want to talk about giving religious people respect? Well, give them enough respect so you don't have a poll about them. Enough about that. Now, you know, when you talk about dealing with some of the world's ills, and I do mean the world's ills, you have to take a look at Volkswagen for the moment, because they're ill. I'm telling you now, they are ill. Apparently, you know, they've been rigging emissions tests, use some kind of software that makes it seem as though 
their cars aren't spewing as many pollutants into the air as they actually are. This is important because Volkswagen has invested a great deal in diesel technology. You heard that whole clean diesel thing? Well, now it appears as though, maybe at least in Volkswagen's case, they've been rigging the testing so clean diesel is not as clean as everybody thinks it is. Now, the New York Times has an article that's headlined, Volkswagen test rigging follows a long auto industry pattern. In other words, they're not the first to do this kind of crap. In the past, it's been mileage and emissions, well, emissions too, but mileage. You know, that, that's, like, well, I get 50 zillion miles to the gallon on the highway, slightly less than, some of that stuff is crap. It's pure crap. And it's crap because the car companies have rigged the results. You know, it's it's like going to a a, a a casino, which I don't go to. I don't I don't bet on anything. But it seems like you know when you get in a car these days, you're betting that what they tell you about the car is for real. Now, according to this article, cheating in the United States started as soon as governments began regulating automotive emissions in the early 1970s. That's a long time ago. You know, uh, last year, oh no, this was actually back in the day, Volkswagen got fined after finding that the company had installed devices intended specifically to shut down the vehicle's pollution control system. Defeat devices, they're called. So there's a history here. Now, today, Volkswagen's chief executive, Martin Winterkorn, resigned. Resigned because, you know, he, he was put in an untenable position. The cheating was going on, and even if he didn't know about it, which I never heard him say he didn't, it happened on his watch, so he had to fall on the sword. But when you see an article like this that intimates that this cheating has been going on for a long, long time, and involves a number of automakers, you got to start asking yourself, what are we getting when we get these cars? Are we getting the gas mileage? Are the emissions devices actually working? Are they cutting down pollution to the extent that the automaker tells us? Now, they're at an advantage when it comes to consumers and emissions because most people don't go into a, a, a car dealership and ask as a first, second, third, or tenth question, well, how many, you know, how, how much pollution is the car? You know, people don't pay attention to that. Maybe some people that are looking to get diesel vehicles and they want to make sure they get diesel cars that don't spew pollutants, you know, like a, 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 a tractor trailer, they may ask. Most people don't, I don't think. So, I guess they figured, like, you know, don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> That's the way it looks at. It's the way it looks at this point. Uh, and, and see, here's the most important part in this story in the New York Times. And they talk about, you know, settlements that have been done last year. Hyundai and Kia paid $300 million in a settlement for overstating the mileage of 1.2 million vehicles. Ford also had to cut the mileage rating of one of its hybrid electric vehicles after complaints. 
and the EPA has imposed stiffer fines for overstating mileage claims. You think that's going to stop these guys? Oh, no. Here's the, and it's just like one sentence. No matter the offense, penalties have often been fleeting. Executives are not jailed. Fines are manageable. Now, that's, that's really something to think about. Should a car, an automobile maker executive go to jail for fudging some of this stuff? For de- deliberately installing software that messes with the emissions? The emission monitoring system? Should somebody go to jail for that? Uh, I got to tell you, maybe they should. Joan Claybrook, Claybrook, I'm sorry, former administrator of the EPA, said, quote, I don't see them changing this behavior unless criminal penalties are enacted into law that allow the prosecutor to put the executives in jail. End quote. Sound familiar? Sound familiar, party people? Remember all them banks? <laughs> the banksters? They haven't changed all that much about what they've been doing. Because people didn't go to jail. The people that caused the 2008 Great Recession, they're still out here. Some of them made stupid money. Jail time. You know, like if somebody, <laughs> if somebody gets caught doing something stupid on the streets of New York, and they get busted. Jail time. Look at Khalif Browder. That kid that spent three years on Rikers Island, and then it turned out they couldn't even find the guy who, who accused him of stealing a backpack. Kid gets out of jail and commits suicide. Now, I'm not saying that automobile executives ought to be encouraged to commit suicide. That's not the point. The point is there's a two-track justice system. One set of justice or one set of rules for ordinary people and a different set of rules for people who got to make their tea times every weekend. Think about that. And again, you know, they nail Volkswagen this time and they'll pay a fine. But what's going to happen further down the road? Now, here's a really, really interesting story. And it will just go and, and you know, You hate to put this in a partisan context, but what the hell? You can't help it because the people that are trying to pull this crap off are Republicans. This is uh, from Politico, Florida, okay, because it happened in Florida. I'm going to quote this directly. In a private gathering during last month's Republican Party of Florida quarterly meeting, State Representative Janet Adkins told a group of North Florida GOP activists that the key to defeating Kareem Brown, a black Jacksonville Democrat, is boosting the number of black prisoners in her district. That's right. Comments came during a closed-door meeting of the North Florida Republican Caucus. Political Florida got the audio. (laughs) You know, these people are so stupid. Stupid. There's no way on God's good. They didn't learn anything from Mitt Romney? Oh, yeah, it's a closed-door meeting. And this one, actually, Atkins, she actually said, are there any reporters in the room? <laughs> God. They don't have to be in the room, you pillock. 
Is that a bad word? <laughs> oh, sorry. I, I used that word. My asked if my I asked my wife who knows these things if it's a bad word. She said, "Yeah, that's all right. I'm going to say it anyway." The woman is a pillock. Sorry. Uh, she said, "Let me give you the inside ball game. Are there any reporters in here? Any reporters? Okay, so inside ball game." And they're talking about trying to get rid of Kareem Brown. Kareem Brown is an African-American Democrat in Congress who has served for some 23 years. She's considered, at least according to this article, to be a firebrand. There have been a host of Florida Democrats, including Carrie Meek, who were considered firebrand. I I interviewed Carrie Meek one time. (laughs) She she got emotional about something. Hey, this ain't no time for half-stepping. Well, Kareem Brown's the same way. She don't play. So they want to get rid of her, the Republicans do. So she, Atkins, addressed Danny Norton, who's a state committeeman from Baker County, which includes, by the way, a large prison population. So this woman says, quote, you can actually, Danny, you can be the person that will help get rid of Kareem Brown. Kareem Brown. You know, because they're redistricting in Florida. So they figure if they gerrymander the district so that there are large numbers of inmates who, by the way, when convicted of a felony in the state of Florida, cannot vote, that will dilute Congresswoman Brown's strength. Now, this is very, very interesting. When political Florida asked Atkins about the comments, She originally said that she is not on the redistricting committee and is focused on education. And then she said, quote, I was having a private conversation, unquote. Now, you can make of this whatever you wish. All right, again, I ain't telling you how to think. I'm just telling you, this happened. This happened. And you think it's difficult to imagine that Republicans across the country aren't trying to figure out ways to disenfranchise as many black people as is humanly possible. Here's this woman in in a closed door meeting saying, listen, if we can shape these districts so Corinne Brown gets a large number of black prisoners in the district, then she'll be gone because we'll run somebody against her and we'll get all the white people. I mean, she didn't say this, but this is the clear inference. We'll get the white folks to vote for whoever this person is. And uh, it's interesting. Interesting. Now, the district that Congresswoman Brown is in is considered one of the most gerrymandered seats in the country. Now, this is fascinating. Also, it should be very, very troubling. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff about configurations and whatever, uh, which I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to try and uh, not bore you with it, but it's, it's inside Florida politics. And I'm not, you know, I know a lot about New York politics, a little less about Florida. But the bottom line is this, this ought to be criminal what they're doing. I'm sorry. It ought to be criminal. Now, here's another part of this story. 
Though they cannot vote, prisoners are counted as part of a congressional district's overall population. Gee, where have I heard about that before? Is that kind of sort of the three-fifths compromise from back in the day? This is fascinating. And see, the thing is, they drew her, her district in 1992 so that black voters can elect a candidate of their own choosing, and they chose Corrine Brown. Now, what the Republicans really have a problem with in Florida is the fact that that district was configured to elect a black person in the first place. Union County Republican Chair Mike Rich said, why do we have such a monster in our political correctness where we've got to have a minority person and we've got to build a congressional district so she can get reelected? End quote. That's all you need to know, party people. All you need to know. Our number is area code 877-874-4888. Whatever you want. You want to talk about Pope Francis? You want to talk about this Florida thing, which I really has my blood boiling. Maybe, maybe it's no big deal to you because you don't live in Florida. But I submit to you that this is exactly the kind of gerrymandering that Republicans do all over the country when they get the opportunity, when they get the chance to draw district lines. It's 630. We're at the halfway mark. 877-874-4888. we got a bunch of other stories. We're going to take a very quick break. And we're going to come back with the second half of the Mark Riley Show. This is PRN.FM. Tune in anytime for the latest in progressive news and ideas. We're moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. With us. With us. With us. It's the VRONX. You know what's next. It's a bowl of soul. Get your dose of classic soul and independent R&B music from the United States and abroad on Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. A Bowl of Soul is a music experience you won't forget or regret. Check out A Bowl of Soul on the Progressive Radio Network. The story behind the story. Your story. My story. It's all in the mix on Lead Stories right here on PRN.FM. This is Utrice Lead inviting you to share your thoughts and opinions and expand your knowledge about critical issues of the day, Monday through Friday, right after Gary Knowles' show. Listen live to a broadcast or get Lead Stories whenever you want from PRN's archive. You can even rate the show on iTunes. Now pass the word. Tell this story to everyone you know. The Progressive Radio Network is moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. P-R-N. Progressive Radio Network.
37 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. It's the Mark Bradley Show, heard weekly at this particular time on the Progressive Radio Network. Now, my wife, during the break, <laughs> what about Empire? Well, what about it? It's going to be on tonight. I think, what is it, 9 o'clock Eastern? Is it 9 o'clock Eastern? I guess uh, they're, they have, Empire has a lot of followers. I don't happen to be one of them. Uh, you know, it's not. I got uh, Terry uh, Terrence Howard, great actor. Uh, Taraji Henson, great actress. You know, they got a great cast or whatever. I just don't like to see you know s- stories that center around people coming in and out of prison and holding guns to people's heads, which is what I, with the little bit of Empire that I've seen, that's what I've seen. Oh, it is not. My wife is saying that's on half the movies I watch. I don't watch stuff with people getting shot. Yeah, my wife. My wife likes to yell at me. The Godfather. Yeah, what? Uh, I'm, yeah, the God. Everybody's seen the Godfather. My God. Anyway, as a, uh, I forgot who. Oh yeah, that's right. That was uh, Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre. You say back to the business at hand. Starbucks. Y'all like Starbucks? I've never been a big fan of their coffee, uh, and I'm not trying to, you know, encourage anybody to drink it or not to drink it. Uh, but there was a story that caught my eye, and it's headlined: Starbucks falls short after pledging better labor practices. Gee, there's probably a bunch of companies around the country that have promised better labor practices. The problem with Starbucks is something that their employees call clopening. That requires those employees to shut down the store at night and then get back up at the break of break of break of dawn and help open it the next morning. Now, Starbucks had vowed to provide more consistent work schedules and to post worker schedules at least 10 days in advance. Uh, The Times interviewed five current or recent workers at several locations around the country. And by the way, you can find a Starbucks like out the door in most places. Uh, They say they often receive their schedules one week or less in advance. And the schedules are uh, the schedules vary every few weeks. Two said their stores are still practicing clopenings. Now, these complaints were documented in a report that was released today by the Center for Popular Democracy. I guess that means there must be some kind of a left-wing group. Uh, but they gathered responses from some 200 self-identified baristas. You know, baristas, for those of you who don't drink coffee, baristas are people who work at Starbucks throughout the United States. And Jamie Riley, no relation, a spokesperson for Starbucks, said, quote, we're the first to admit we have work to do, but we feel like we make good progress and that doesn't align with what we're seeing. And she said, now all baristas get their schedules at least 10 days in advance. Uh, and, you know, see, the, the, the thing about this, that, you know, because I have in the past had Starbucks coffee, the thing that's irritating about this is that, you know, these folks have in-house press communications people, and their job is to respond to stuff like this. And they usually respond. 
I say, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're doing the best we can. It may not be totally done yet, although some of them will say, no, uh-uh, that's not true. Everything's cool. Starbucks, to its credit, is a little more circumspect. But what I find interesting is that Starbucks has presented itself as something different, something better. You know, uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but, you know, because I do some shopping for our household, not as much as my dear wife, who's sitting down to watch Empire in an hour. But, uh, no, not an hour, two hours, excuse me. Uh, but, you know, I, I go to different stores, and you kind of get, maybe it's my advanced age, but you kind of get a vibe as to whether or not most of the people in a given store like working in that given store, or they're just there punching a clock for not so much money, and they don't really care one way or the other. It comes across. It really does. There are certain supermarkets, I'm not going to mention them, where the camaraderie among employees is palpable. The people in the produce section know the people who are selling seafood. And they get along. You can tell. You know, they're laughing, they're joking, they're talking. But all the while, getting their work done. And then there are other places you go, and you can tell that the for these employees, it's just, it's a gig, man. It's what I'm doing, and, you know, and it's, in some cases with younger people, it's like, it's what I'm doing until I can find something better. The older people that work in some of these places do so with an air of resignation. It's like, not that they're going to resign from wherever they're working, but like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I can do. This is what I'm doing. And, you know, Starbucks has always presented itself as being a place where the workers work together. It's, you know, that whole team thing. And sometimes you see people in Starbucks who are really enthusiastic about what they do. But then other times you see people who are going through the motions. And maybe this is part of the reason why. According to the New York Times, and this is a direct quote from this article, in the last two years, the combination of a tight labor market and legal changes from a rising minimum wage to fair scheduling legislation that would discourage practices like clopenings has raised labor concerns for employee for employers of labor costs, that is, for employers of low-skilled workers in many parts of the country. To help companies navigate this new landscape, a number of academics and labor advocates have urged a so-called good jobs or high road approach in which companies pay workers higher wages and grant them more stable hours, then recover the costs through higher productivity and lower turnover, which makes sense to me. You know, uh, this is a, a, a person who teaches at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Bad jobs are not a cost-driven necessity, but a choice. You know, and, and that choice comes from managers who see no alternative. They have a certain budget for labor, and whatever they have to do to keep within budget, even if it means this so-called clopening thing, 
or even if it means, you know, keeping people on the edge of, of full-time work so they get health benefits and that sort of thing, all of that they will do. And a lot of this, a lot of this is a relatively recent phenomenon as America has gone from a manufacturing-based economy to a service-based economy. The corporate cultures at these places sort of have uh, different ways that they approach employees. Remember, was, was, was it Walmart that used to lock their employees in the graveyard shift employees in the, uh, in the store? ostensibly to prevent theft. You remember that? That's part of a corporate culture that I believe now is illegal. Thank God. But you see, there's much more to this because this is not just about Starbucks. It really isn't. It's about how these companies, who, by the way, uh, employ so-called low-wage workers, uh, and, and when I say low-wage workers, a shift supervisor earns a few dollars more an hour than the minimum wage, which means if you're not a shift supervisor, you're probably making right around the minimum wage. And, you know, this is a, a complex issue for a place like Starbucks because they, you know, they're not doing what some of these other more ruthless companies are doing. But they did say they were going to clean it up. And apparently, according to this study, they haven't done it yet. A guy named Benton Stokes managed two separate Starbucks in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Quote, we were given a certain number of labor hours and we were supposed to schedule only that number in a given week. If I had to exceed my labor budget and I was careful not to, I would have had to have had I, I would have had to have a conversation with the district manager. If there were a couple of conversations, it would be a write-up. So what that means is essentially Starbucks is understaffed on purpose. On purpose. So that these folks can make their budget. Their labor budget. And again, it's a complex thing. And uh, you know, I am not one certainly who thinks that Starbucks ought to go out of business or anything. It's not my favorite coffee place. And as a matter of fact, I make my coffee at home. You know, I actually go to a store in Brooklyn and I buy my favorite coffee, which happens to be Brazil dark roast. And I bring it home and I buy it whole bean. And every morning before I wipe the cobwebs out of my head, which this coffee helps me do, I put it in a grinder, grind it up, and put it through a coffee maker. I don't need no stinking Starbucks. The only time I would end up with a Starbucks is if I'm on a long road trip and needed to stay awake, or if I'm getting ready to do something like that's going to require me to be like really up way after I drink my daily cup of coffee and I feel like, all right, I need a little caffeine to get through this, whatever it may be. It's certainly not this show, all right? I don't want to give people the wrong impression. But that is when I'll do it. 
So, I mean, I, you know, maybe I don't have a dog in the hunt as far as Starbucks is concerned. But given the number of Starbucks that are out here, you would hope that if they pledge to do the right thing, they would, in fact, do the right thing. Now, the New York City administration, not this one, this is a previous administration, thought they were doing the right thing by banning styrofoam food containers. You know those ones that they put, you know, like if you get a doggy bag at a restaurant or something, they put it in a styrofoam container, plastic foam. Uh, You know, Chinese takeout, a lot of it had, or halal food. Well, New York City's ban on those containers has been overturned. And now... There's an industry, of course, it's an industry back plan to buy and recycle these styrofoam items. Now, I was given to understand at the time they they banned this that you really couldn't recycle that styrofoam. That, like, if you put it in a landfill, it's going to be there for a thousand zillion years. I don't know whether that was true or not, but... Justice Margaret A. Chan of State Supreme Court in Manhattan described the ban as arbitrary and capricious and denied the city's claim that recycling used polystyrene containers was neither environmentally effective nor economically feasible. Uh, Actually, de Blasio did put this in effect. It was proposed by Michael Bloomberg two years ago. De Blasio put it into effect in July. And I think that, you know, a lot of people figured, well, this is a way to kind of change the culture of takeout so that people would get used to different types of takeout containers. The judge in this case, Judge Chan, Justice Chan, ordered the sanitation department to reconsider the ban because a phone container manufacturer came up with a proposal to pay for better machines to clean and sort the material and keep it out of landfill, or at least most of it. Uh, wow. This is, this is very interesting. Because it was Bloomberg's idea, and like sugar, you know, the, the ban on uh, sugary drinks, large sugary drinks, we're trying to get rid of them. Nope. Sorry. Sugary drinks thing was defeated in court, and now this. The city is apparently exploring its options, including an appeal. Uh, I'm sure Mayor de Blasio will likely appeal this. Says a de Blasio spokeswoman, we disagree with the ruling. These products cause real environmental harm, and we need to be able to prevent nearly 30,000 tons of expanded polystyrene waste from entering our landfills, streets, and waterways. Now, if you've ever been on a Manhattan street and see, I, I saw this happen one time a couple of years ago. I couldn't believe it. Uh, somebody, I guess, had broken up a styrofoam container. must have been a takeout container because this was a lot. And it suddenly appeared as though because a, a wind came up and it appeared like it was almost snowing. And, of course, you know, even if you do the right thing with styrofoam, it ends up in a garbage can. The sanitation department picks it up unless you put it in a recyclable situation. And I don't know who these people are. Uh, The Restaurant Action Alliance and others 
They were the ones that sued. They said that it is, in fact, possible to recycle the containers in a way that cut down on landfill additions and save the city money. So many businesses have already made the changeover. Uh, I don't, how do you recycle the used containers? The Dart Container Corporation, which is based in Michigan, put forward a plan that its director of recycling said would allow the city to start recycling a wider variety of plastics and guarantee that products made from recycled foam containers would make their way back into the market. Now, if they can grab these containers, recycle them, and reuse in whatever way the recycled material, that's not a bad thing. But, you know, there's a a, a very large gap between somebody saying they can do that and it actually getting done. Uh, I, you know, the city, according to Justice Chan, the city could make at least $400,000 by recycling 40% of its yearly plastic foam waste. Now, environmental groups and advocates say this stuff about recycling is crap. These plastic foam containers cannot be recycled. And even if you try to do a recycling program, the cost is prohibited. So we're going to keep paying attention to that. Now, here's a story. We only got 10 minutes left. I don't know how far I'm going to go with this, but it's a very, very interesting story. It's in the Village Voice, and I would commend it to your attention. It's headlined, What the Summer of Denudas Taught Us About Tabloids, de Blasio, and Who Really Runs New York. I was one who was sort of scratching my head at the whole Denudas media phenomenon. And that's what it was. For those of you who don't know, these were bare-chested ladies who painted their bodies and went, you know, marched through Times Square and took pictures with people for tips. What they were doing technically was not against the law, but that didn't stop the tabloids. It didn't stop city officials. It didn't even stop Governor Andrew Cuomo from trying to figure out how to get rid of them. Of course, a couple more cold days out here, you'll get rid of them environmentally, but that's a whole other discussion for another day. They couldn't wait that long. And this article talks about What types of issues get wide media attention, by the way, at the expense of other issues, but why they get this much attention? The Denudas were not blowing anything up, (coughs) although there were questions about whether or not uh, they were representing some foreign government or something, because they're foreign nationals. And the interesting thing uh, was the Post started all this with an article in April titled Topless Women Posing with Underage Kids in Times Square. And ironically enough, this didn't come from the Post. It came from a tour guide named Brian Mathis. He leads tours of eighth graders for the Global Travel Alliance, And he's the one that pitched the post on the story 
because I guess the middle school kids that he was in charge of with this global travel alliance, their parents might not be so quick to want their kids to come to New York if there were painted naked women that they might encounter. And, of course, you know, young boys, naked women, no telling what could happen. Uh, and he says that the tourism industry could, in fact, be hurt by the presence of the Danube. I don't know whether that's true. I don't know whether that's true or not. I've always been kind of sort of laissez-faire. I've, I have yet to see a Danube. My wife won't let me. <laughs> All right, let's be clear. Uh, I don't, you know, much less tip them. I ain't, got, I ain't got money to tip naked women. That's why I don't go to strip clubs. But this situation became this whole cause celeb in large measure because the tabloids grabbed it and wouldn't let go. And I mean, really wouldn't let go. Um, This guy, Brian Matthews, used to work for PR Newswire. And he called the Post to pitch the story, and the next thing you know... It was getting picked up all over the world, in fact. The New York Times did a piece back in August, and they kind of made it a human interest story, sort of, kind of, sort of. Then the Daily News wrote two stories, and they they were a little more alarmist. Quote, an out-of-control influx of near-naked women jockeying for tips has turned Times Square into triple X crossroads of the world. They could have added again, <laughs> shocking children and incensing legions of tourists and New Yorkers alike. So the tabloids kept feeding this tabloids and the broadsheet kept feeding this denuda frenzy as if the decline and fall of Western civilization. And interestingly enough, the notion that their mere presence was taking New York back to the bad old days. Since they haven't been able to establish, you know, a a rampant increase in criminality, which was their first line of defense against Bill de Blasio. Because let's face it, these papers don't really care that much for de Blasio for a number of reasons. Maybe some of them are legit. Maybe some of them aren't. But they really don't care much for him. And the Danudas became such an issue that de Blasio himself had to jump into the thing and start talking about I mean, it got to the point that they were going to destroy the pedestrian tourist plaza in order to get rid of the Danudas. They were going to get rid of something that tens of thousands of people use and enjoy just to get rid of these semi-naked women. It's amazing. And the the bottom line of this story, and it was a really great piece, is the priorities of New Yorkers of color aren't always the priorities of its media. In many cases, others, wealthy tourists, whoever, are the people that drive the agenda of the media, not necessarily the concerns of ordinary folk like you and me. We're almost out of time. And uh, 
you know, Ben Carson, Ben Carson is crazy, you know. Well, I don't, I shouldn't say that. But, you know, he made this thing that a Muslim should never be elected president, which is anti-American on its face. It's anti-religion. A person's religion should have nothing to do. You know, they used to do this against Catholics till Kennedy got elected in 1960. Oh, no, we can't have a Catholic president. And now Ben Carson, maybe somebody, maybe he was busy, you know, doing neurosurgery or something, so he never read a history book. But he doubled down on this thing, saying that there's a PC culture in the country, and that's why people were outraged over what he said. Crazy. Absolute craziness. But, you know, he was the man who would be president. Is it me or are people starting to get a little sick and tired of Donald Trump? I'm starting to think like maybe, just maybe, the bloom is off the rose with Trump. Some of the favorable publicity is starting to turn. I still believe he's going to pull out eventually Declare victory and then pull out. So we uh, are just about out of time. So I didn't get a chance to talk about this city in Michigan, Dearborn, that ended up paying $40,000 in a settlement after a woman was ticketed for having HIV. Ticketed for having HIV. That would be by a police officer who shouldn't have a job. There was a woman in Seattle who I saw on uh, Facebook, a cop who busted a guy, a a 70-year-old veteran and retired Seattle bus driver, for having a golf club as a cane. She's been fired, thankfully. They put the guy in handcuffs and put him in the back of a van. How stupid are people? I don't know. It boggles the mind. It's time for me to get out of here. Thanks to Jason. Thanks to Gary Knoll. All the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. My name is Mark Riley. This has been the Mark Riley Show. We will return next Wednesday, 6 p.m. God willing, in the creek don't rise. That's 6 p.m. Eastern. Have yourselves a great rest of the evening and a better day ahead.